HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Okay, it's Thursday, 1 o'clock, and once again, you have tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, on a lovely 70-degree sunny day. And today we are on the line with Sandor Katz to talk about his new book, The Art of Fermentation. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Erin. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, it's great to have you. So your book, The Art of of Fermentation, is an in-depth exploration of the essential concepts and processes um, regarding fermentation from around the world. And I know, you know, when we're talking fermentation, there's a lot of stuff that comes to mind. And just to name a few that are covered in the book, you talk about beer, wine, cider, olives, cheese, pickles, yogurt, bread, kombucha, coffee, chocolate, miso... Soy sauce, tofu, tempeh, fish sauce. I mean, I could go on. And and I'd say it probably comes as no surprise to anyone, if you'll excuse the pun, that fermentation is a pretty hot topic and a topic that, uh, you know, we engage with a lot in in our daily lives through our diet, whether or not we kind of recognize that. But one of the things I thought was so interesting about your book is you kind of take this discussion, to, to my knowledge, kind of a step further, and I really want to explore with you today some of the stuff from the later chapters in your book, uh, in particular your work um, and the explanation in the book around fermentation and agriculture, which was a, a surprising topic, I'll have to say. I mean, how did you decide to, to include that in your kind of compendium of, of fermentation work? Well, um, you know, through, through the years as I, you know, became interested in fermentation and, you know, first began practicing fermentation and then started exploring uh, lots of different realms of fermentation, um, you know, at the same time as I've been doing that, I've been, you know, composting, keeping a garden, meeting other gardeners and farmers, hearing about silage, 
And uh, just just realizing that, um, you know, in the same way that there's a certain inevitability to fermentation on, on food and that, you know, cultures around the world, um, you know, by necessity had to figure out ways of, um, you know, working with that natural force, um, you know, the same is true of agriculture, where, you know, really, you know, the basis of soil fertility is the microbial breakdown of dead plant and animal matter. And, you know, some people put a lot of thought and planning into how they construct uh, their compost piles. Some people do it in more, um, uh, you know, lackadaisical um, um, ways. Um, but, but, you know, whatever method you use, microorganisms are what break down dead plant and animal matter, uh, you know, into humus, which is the basis of the um, renewal of soil fertility. So I think that, um, you know, fermentation is absolutely essential to agriculture, and even the bigger picture than agriculture, if we're thinking about, you know, the cycles of life and death, it's really the cycles of life and death and fermentation. Awesome. Do you, I, do you feel like you see fermentation everywhere? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> for, for, fermentation is everywhere. And, and what is your kind of like working definition? I mean, as this kind of uh, activity that, that impacts so many different aspects uh, of, of food and, and of life, I mean, how in, in, a, in a few sentences when someone asks you what exactly is fermentation, I mean, what's your answer to that? Well, and this is usually how I how I you know start off my 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 talks and workshops is just you know what is fermentation anyway? Um, broadly speaking, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Biologists typically work with a more restrictive definition that fermentation is um, anaerobic metabolism, the production of energy without oxygen. And most of the classic food ferments uh, are indeed anaerobic processes, whether we're talking about alcohol production or lactic acid production. Uh, those don't require oxygen. But there are also lots of foods um, um, and, and beverages. Think uh, kombucha, vinegar, tempeh, um, which require oxygen. So they are aerobic. So a biologist might say those are not strictly speaking fermentations, but, but in the you know, lay world um, you know, of foods and beverages, everybody considers these to be products of fermentation as well. So I work with a broader definition that fermentation is a transformative action of microorganisms. When we move into the realm of compost and thinking about compost, people have very passionate feelings. Um, you know, you have to build an aerobic pile that will generate a certain amount of heat. Um, you know, some other methods work with anaerobic um, uh, organisms and, and conditions. Um, so, so I am continuing to apply my broad definition uh, that fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms, which can, you know, cover, uh, you know, any kind of compost pile. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit more about this concept of, of, of soil fertility and, and compost. I mean, to, to many, you know, there, you, you, you mentioned that there's kind of passionate advocates for different types of uh, uh, compost management. And, you know, on a really basic level, you know, you have everything from just throwing kind of stuff in a pile in your backyard to a more kind of intensive input-output kind of turning measurement of carbon and nitrate system. So kind of across the spectrum, I mean, how, how would you, um, like what would your approach be or where do you see kind of people using different one, different types of compost techniques for different uh, end results? <clears throat> um, 
Well, I mean, I, I would say for the most part for, you know, large farms that have machinery that can easily turn a huge mass, um, you know, I think aerobic uh, uh, composting methods are, you know, extremely efficient and, uh, and elegant and wonderful. Um, you know, but if you don't have, uh, you know, a tractor with a front loader that makes it really easy to repeatedly turn a pile when you need to turn it, um, you know, I've had fine results in my own, you know, backyard with, you know, really um, um, uh, um, low uh, low involvement compost piles where, you know, I just try, I dump my kitchen waste, I dump my garden waste, and then I try to use some, you know, drier, browner, carbonaceous material between each of those layers, um, you know, and maybe I'll, I'll, maybe I'll turn it once over the course of the season. Um, and that's a pretty mixed bag, what's going to develop in a, in a system like that. Um, you know, I know one of the issues with big compost piles, if you, uh, you know, construct them well, is they build up a lot of heat. And, and so when the activity gets that frenzied, then the organisms are, are, are uh, metabolizing so fast that they often um, uh, uh, run out of oxygen. They don't have enough oxygen in the center to sustain that level of activity. And that's when a pile goes anaerobic. And that's why gauging the temperature is a great way of knowing when you really need to be turning the pile. Um, I'm really not particularly, uh, you know, an advocate of, 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 of any specific uh, system or, or other. Um, you know, in, in this section of the book, you know, I'm, I'm mostly just trying to relate the fermentation concepts that the, you know, previous 13 chapters focus on, which have to do with um, food production, and, and, and point out the fact that we use a lot of the same concepts, um, you know, in, in, in agriculture and in other non-food applications of fermentation. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that I, I think people kind of think about a lot when they think about fermentation is, the, is you know, issues with regards to s- safety. Like, how, how do I know this is, like, a safe thing to eat? Or And with regards to compost, I mean, I know, I think earlier this year out at, at Fresh Kills Landfill, they had actually a compost fire. So, I mean, what would have gone wrong in that instance that would, would lead to, to that kind of outcome? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that, that the, the heat at the center of a pile just got so intense that it was able to, um, um, <clears throat> you know, catch, catch some of the um, uh, dry carbonaceous materials on fire. Uh, this is the first I've heard of it. Uh, I've, I've actually never heard of such a thing before. But, um, y- you know, you, you cannot underestimate the, you know, potential power of these processes, especially, you know, in something like composting, you know, the, the, the bigger the scale, the greater the the, the um, opportunity for accumulating heat, and uh, you know, I mean, I've seen I've seen uh, you know steam rising out of um, you know a relatively small comp- compost pile that was you know six feet high. I can only imagine when you mass garbage at the kind of scale that uh, that exists at Fresh Kills, what the what the potential for heat accumulation might be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the end, everything ended up okay over in Fresh Kills, but I think it was kind of an interesting uh, story that came across my desk. Well, kind of continuing... But, but, but let, me, let me address the bigger safety issue yeah, that, sure. that you raised, because I think, you know, especially for, you know, people of our time um, who are uh, raised and indoctrinated, um, you know, into what I call the war on bacteria and this idea that, yeah, this generalized idea that bacteria are, are dangerous, our lives would somehow be better if we could 
eradicate all the bacteria. Um, and so, you know, when, when, when people, uh, you know, set up a jar filled with vegetables at home specifically in order to cultivate bacteria, um, they bring a certain amount of fear to it. And, and, and a lot of people are, are concerned, you know, how do I know that I'm going to get the right bacteria growing and not some invisible killer? You know, how, do, how can I be sure that I'm not going to make my family sick or one of my friends? And, um, you know, at least in the realm of fermenting raw vegetables, um, you know, this this process is intrinsically safe. Uh, as a matter of fact, according to the USDA, there never has been a single case of food poisoning reported in the United States from fermented vegetables. Wow. And there are, not, there are not many foods that you could say that about. You couldn't say that about raw vegetables because we hear every year about, um, you know, people getting sick from, uh, you know, lettuce, spinach, tomatoes. You know, it's been sort of, you know, one, one raw vegetable after another. Um, but, you know, if you were to take vegetables, Vegetables that had been subjected to some sort of incidental contamination like that, and uh, and 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 set up the conditions for a sauerkraut fermentation. What would happen is that the lactic acid bacteria that are always, um, um, you know, part of the uh, you know indigenous microflora on, on on any raw plant material, they will dominate the environment, and as they acidify the environment, they will destroy whatever the you know. Uh, um, um, uh, contaminating pathogenic bacteria are. One of the really beautiful and elegant things about lactic acid fermentations is that they are a built-in um, 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 uh, you know, safety mechanism. They create a condition that does not allow any of the organisms that we know the names of that we regard as pathogenic that can make us sick. Um, they don't allow them to grow. So, um, so that's what makes sauerkraut and, and related vegetable ferments such intrinsically safe foods. Yeah, I, I get the sense that there is kind of, you know, a growing interest in, in fermentation. I know here in Brooklyn, you see kind of a, a lot of new kind of smaller scale food businesses popping up, taking advantage of some of this interest. But on a broader scale, you know, I'm just thinking of like Jamie Lee Curtis and the probiotic yogurt commercials. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on kind of the co-opting of, of that language or, you know, using this kind of microbial or anti, you know, um, language as like a sales tool for a company like, you know, Yoplait or Dannon. And like, is that a real thing? Is that something worth paying extra for? Is it something that is in yogurt already? I mean, what's going on there? <clears throat> Well, you know, I would say all yogurt is probiotic. Um, you know, just because yogurt yogurt is defined by a bacterial community, and there are always lactic acid bacteria uh, in yogurt. People define probiotics in different ways. Um, you know, some people, and I would imagine that the um, probiotic yogurt manufacturers are among them, would say that you know probiotics are only specific strains that have been um, uh, um, uh, studied and proven to have um, um, benefit. Uh, the World Health Organization works with a broader definition and just says that probiotics are, 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 are any bacteria that confer benefit um, to the individual uh, uh, who, who ingests them. And that individual you know, could be a person or actually could, could be livestock as well. Um, most of the research is done on um, uh, pr proprietary strains of bacteria, typically bacteria that are, um, that are of human origin. 
So, um, uh, you know, so bacteria that are derived from somebody's intestines uh, have been isolated in the laboratory and, uh, and propagated and, uh, and studied. Traditional foods are not owned by anyone, and, and, and you know, there's nobody to sponsor clinical trials of sauerkraut, um, for instance. Um, but there is a, a limited amount, of, and so most of the research about probiotics is about specific proprietary strains, but there has been a little bit of really fascinating research looking at um, you know, people who eat traditional fermented live culture foods. Um, and uh, uh, the one that, 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 that stands out in my mind the most was a study in Spain where they took a group of people who eat at least five portions a week of you know, traditional live culture fermented foods. They did some baseline analysis of, uh, of, of the, the subject's um, uh, blood and stool, and they got baseline numbers on some indicators of immune functioning. And then they put those people on a deprivation diet, and after a few weeks of deprivation, everybody's um, um, indicators had been severely suppressed. So, so that suggests right off the bat that you know, there is some immune-stimulating benefit to these traditional fermented foods. Then they put half the group on uh, uh, traditional yogurt and the other half of the group on one of these probiotic yogurts. Um, both of those groups restored approximately equal um, uh, function, but none of them restored the full function that the people on a diet of varied live culture foods had had. So in other words, the greatest immune-stimulating benefit that we get is from the variety of bacteria, eating bacteria associated with different types of fermented foods. Um, so, 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 you know, because of bacterial, the flexibility of bacterial genetics, a single strain will never be as powerfully beneficial to us as eating a variety of different kinds of foods that have their own indigenous bacterial populations. So, um, you know, I have become a strong, um, you know, believer in the probiotic benefit of, you know, traditional fermented foods. You do not need to have, you know, specific strains uh, which have been studied. You know, although, you know, the, the studies are, are very impressive, you know, all of the varied things that have been demonstrated to um, uh, show improvement on the basis of probiotic therapy. That's fascinating, and it's kind of no surprise that variety leads to greater health outcomes. I think you'd probably see that across all aspects of someone's diet. Um, Kind of, we need to take a a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about fermenting urine, an unexpected uh, component of this chapter. (laughs) Okay, well, we can talk about that. All right, we'll be right back. Ranch grass-fed beef 
pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Okay, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are talking fermentation. So um, I, I want to get into this this idea of fermenting urine, but maybe before that, you can comment a little bit um, on this idea of, of waste, both I think human and animal, as a kind of disposal problem versus a nutrient kind of opportunity and how, um, how maybe those two arguments go back and forth or change when you look at the scale uh, of agriculture from a backyard garden to, you know, a large scale, um, you know, cornfield. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that um, uh, the way we have structured our society, um, uh, you know, we, 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 we call our excrement waste. And, um, uh, you know, and then, um, you know, we, we, we actually pollute a lot of water, carrying it away. And then, you know, in every, every town and big city, we need plants to then, um, to then clean it up. So we create a waste problem. Um, and then the way most people are, are, are fertilizing their fields uh, for growing crops is to use, um, um, you know, chemicals, you know, synthetic fertilizers. And, um, you know, I, I, I merely point out that, you know, in, in natural systems, you know, waste is not an inevitability. Um, you know, what we are, what we are conceptualizing as, a, as our waste that needs disposal, we could easily reconceptualize as, you know, a resource that, um, you know, we could use as part of our strategies for fertilizing the, the, the soil. So this idea of, of fermenting urine, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something I feel like my grandpa did. I have like these memories of him like out on the field talking about giving his plants a golden shower, but I never really connected it to. So, so what exactly is that process and, and why would we do it? Well, I mean, you know, urine is very rich in uh, in nitrogen, and uh, you know, it, it can be a um, a great resource for for fertilizing soil. Um, and um, fermenting urine, actually, it turns out that we have an old word in the English language. Um, you know, because because uh, aged urine, fermented urine, um, um, uh, which which is, it's an ammonia fermentation, it becomes more alkaline as it sits. Um, you know, people have historically used um, fermented urine uh, as a as a cleaning product in their homes, um, sort of in place of what 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 most people would use something like ammonia for today. Um, and the word in the English language for that is is lant. Now, you know, as a fertilizer, you know, it's my impression that um, urine, you know, can work well fresh or can work well um, um, aged. As, as a practical matter, you know, the way that, the, the, the way that I have had to, um, you know, collect urine results in some of it being aged because if you collect it in a container, then what first goes into the container begins to, uh, you know, ferment and, and, and further um, alkalinize um, while you're continuing to add fresh urine to it. Um, and, uh, 
you know, I, I, I think that I think it, it can be, you know, profitably applied to fields and to crops, generally diluted with more water, either in its fresh form or in its, you know, more aged fermented form. Um, but, you know, in, in my desire to, um, you know, survey different applications of fermentation, I, I thought it was important to, um, to include that. Wow, you heard it here on the Farm Report. Urine as a house cleaner <laughs> or fertilizer for your backyard garden. So start uh, saving the pots, I guess. One of the other um, aspects in the agriculture chapter that you touch on that um, I would love to hear more about is is preserving forage for livestock, um, looking at silage and, and kind of how we feed, I think, the majority uh, of dairy animals in this country. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, why why it is that this is kind of the main one of the main food sources for these animals well i mean silage is almost exactly like sauerkraut um, you know, you, 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 pile up, you pile up your raw plant material, you pack it really tightly, um, and it undergoes a fermentation during which it, uh, you know, is pre-digested to some degree, making it easier for the animals to digest it. Um, and the acids that are preserved help to, uh, the, 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 um, the, the acids that are, um, that are produced help to preserve the plant material, which is exactly what is happening in the case of sauerkraut. So, you know, really silage, you know, is, you know, almost exactly the same thing as, uh, you know, as, as sauerkraut, except usually instead of doing it in a vessel, you're, you're mounding it up or, or, or inside of a silo, although there, there are uh, historical examples of doing silage uh, in pits or trenches as well. And what would be like the raw ingredients of silage for those who, who might not be aware? Well, I think it could be lots of things, but uh, you know, it, t- it typically would be uh, would would be hay, but it, it could be lots of lots of other kinds of things. Um, you know, it, basically, you know, anything that the animals might might be willing to eat, you know, when in its raw raw condition, they 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 also um, would be able to eat, uh, you know, preserved silage. Yeah, and I think that makes sense if you think about, in particular, the Northeast. Kind of the growing seasons are are not year round, and there is this real need to essentially put up a food supply for your animals, regardless of whether, um, you know, they're raised in confinement or they're raised on pasture. There's not a lot of pasture in northern New York in, you know, January, February, March. So this gives people an opportunity yeah. in, to... In, in, any, in any temperate uh, um, uh, zone, um, uh, you know, some, you know, wh- whether it's bales or, or silage, but yeah, some, some winter forage is absolutely essential. And, and uh, you know, for, on many farms, you know, silage is just a more, more practical method uh, uh, of, um, of storing it. I want to move, uh, I guess, you know, back in terms of your book, but kind of forward in, in the world of agriculture. You know, Chapter 13, you, you talk about, uh, you know, fermentation and, and local food and commercial enterprises, basically giving some really great uh, advice um, for how to scale up a, a fermentation business. And maybe you could go over some of the considerations for someone who might be interested in getting into their own you know, sauerkraut business, what, what, were, what would be some kind of the things that they should be thinking about? Well, first of all, I would just point out more broadly that, um, um, you know, around the world, throughout history, you know, farmers have had to figure out strategies for turning the raw products of agriculture into more stable forms, which are also typically more valuable forms. 
And so, um, you know, thinking about the expression value-added products, um, you know, ferments are, you know, many of the, um, you know, sort of most ancient and well-established value-added products that a farm could create. So, for instance, if you grow grapes, if you can turn that those grapes into wine, you have something that is much more valuable and much more stable. If you are producing milk and you can turn that milk into cheddar cheese, you have something that's much more valuable and much more stable. If you can turn cabbages into sauerkraut, same thing. You have something that's more valuable and, um, and, and more stable. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, basically, I, I mean, I, I, I need to be completely um, um, uh, honest and say that, you know, I have never run a food production business, but what I have done is, um, you know, met and uh, interrogated all sorts of people who, you know, turned their um, interest in fermentation, which they honed in their home kitchens, uh, you know, into a small business. In some cases, you know, tiny enterprises that are, you know, just supplementing someone's income, and in some cases, it's, you know, one person's full-time job, and in some cases, you know, employing a number of people. So, so you know, this can be done um, at, at all scales. Um, but, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, really practicing what you're doing at a small scale before you start to scale up, um, doing it through a year, through seasons, so you can learn something about how to maintain product consistencies through fluctuating temperatures and, and such. Um, and also, you know, I think that the, 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 the best favor that anybody, you know, thinking about starting an enterprise like this can do for themselves is to, you know, find some other people who have started similar kinds of business businesses. You know, if people right in your neck of the woods seem reluctant to share in starting a similar kind of a business that they might perceive as a competitor, well, then, you know, find someone in another part of the country who, you know, isn't going to have to be concerned about that. But, um, you know, I think that, the, you know, the, the, the best and easiest lessons to be learned are lessons that you can learn from people who have already attempted uh, successfully to begin a business like this rather than, you know, inventing the wheel at every turn. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm just curious, in your experience, um, you know, how how forgiving is the fermentation process in that the quality of the of the product that you're putting into it um, impacts the kind of quality of the product that will be coming out of it? And what I mean is, like, if you have a particularly, like, delicious and flavorful crop uh, of something, does that lead to a more delicious and flavorful kind of final product? Or is it kind of like if you have something that's not, you know, at its peak as a fresh product that the fermentation process can kind of take it to the next level and and kind of how do you make decisions with regards to, you know, inputs and outputs? Well, I mean, you you certainly want to use fresh um, and high-quality inputs. But, you know, for instance, um, you know, I I, I met a fellow who uh, has an apple orchard in Wisconsin, and, um, you know, part of what was making his orchard viable was he created a cider business as a side business. And so, the you know, the most beautiful apples that he picks off of the trees that don't have blemishes, he sells to people as apples for eating. 
but the the apples that fall on the ground or the apples that uh, you know have uh, have been bored by 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 various kinds of worms and insects those end up in the cider so you know they they're they're just as tasty but they you know they have blemishes that would be um you know impediments to people wanting to buy them and take them home and eat them um so 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 in a lot of ways a, a fermentation business can be a nice complement uh you know to you know other other types of sales of, of raw fruits or vegetables, um, you know, because they, this often the, you know, the, the, the second quality things that are, that are blemished in some ways, you know, can just be, you know, shredded and turned into sauerkraut or pressed into cider or, or, or whatever. But, you know, but you want to use, you know, fresh, good quality I- ingredients. If you, you know, if you start out with, um, you know, sort of, um, uh, old or 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 or, or second-rate um, um, produce, you're going to end up with you know second-rate products at the end. Yeah, I had always heard that with regards to you know making pickles that essentially you wanted to uh, cucumber pickles anyway that you wanted to the closer to the the when the pickles had come off the vine that you could get the better your kind of final product was going to be. Always led me to kind of a rush of you know putting a brine on to boil and then heading out to pick my pickles. In some pursuit yeah. of like I mean, optimal fresh, fresh, flavor. Fresh, fresh is great. Um, um, you know, I would I would just say that you know I've also seen you know let's say uh, intrepid food rescuers who dive into dumpsters and you know pull out boxes of turnips or whatever. You know, fer- fermentation does offer you know a great route to make use of an abundance of something like that. Um, you know, while while it's um, you know while it's still uh, um, uh, edible, um, it's it's a great way to preserve it. So you know, fer- fermentation can be a way of um, you know rescuing food before it rots, but you'll definitely, you know, get the best uh, results out of things that are, you know, really fresh and wonderful. Um, I noticed at the at the very beginning of your book that, that you have a, a disclaimer kind of in, including, you know, exonerating your, yourself and the publisher of, of <laughs> responsibility for the consequences of the application or misapplication of any information or ideas presented herein. And I'm wondering, you know, why that was included. Was that uh, or, or kind of any kind of conversation or comments you had around that? It- well, um, you know, I mean, I, I do talk about the intrinsic safety of vegetable ferments, but, you know, my, my, my book also ventures into the realm of fermenting meat and fish. Um, and while these, you know, ferments can be done uh, and produce extraordinary flavors and, and, and products, and which can be absolutely safe, they also can be done in ways that are not so safe. Um, and so most of the, you know, potential risk in fermentation, um, you know, would, would, would be in the realm of um, uh, meat and fish, I would say. And, you know, I'm trying to give people information to do it safely, but, I mean, I just want to be clear that, you know, if someone, you know, skims the section and, you know, misses an essential point and, you know, sort of misapplies the information uh, uh, that I gave, that, that you know, there, 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 there are potential um, uh, consequences. Um, As there so, is you know, with think, just about I, I, everything, I, think, you know, I suppose. A, 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 a book that is, you know, attempting to, um, you know, empower people with skills to, you know, try all these things that, you know, many people um, um, find scary. You know, I, I am trying to, um, uh, you know, a, as appropriate, um, you know, uh, 
make people feel feel comfortable and remove the fear but i also want people to um you know i, w- I want people to to be careful and to be smart um and uh you know if they if they dig out a crock and it just smells horrible um you know to 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 trust their senses you know don't 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 eat it just because it said in the book that like you know that it's okay to eat you know if it's uh you know you, you be be smart about it Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of those things where, you know, watching friends of mine who don't spend much time in the kitchen, you know, put a raw chicken on a board and then turn around and chop salad on it. And this kind of really basic need to to share information that uh, may seem seem obvious, I think, is is important and obviously relevant. So I know for people who are interested, they can pick up your book pretty much anywhere books are sold. It's called The Art of Fermentation. Um, You also do kind of workshops and classes. So is there a way if people are interested in getting a more kind of one-on-one or classroom experience that that they can get in touch with you or see a, a listing of your schedule or... Yeah, sure. Um, I have a website, which is wildfermentation.com, and, uh, you, you know, you can order the book through my website. Uh, uh, I list all my workshops. I have links to, you know, hundreds of, um, you know, fermentation-related resources that I have uh, come across on the World Wide Web, and, um, and, and, and absolutely, you can see, see my workshop schedule and, um, you know, try, try to make one of them if that is of interest to you. Awesome. So now that you have created kind of the preeminent tome on fermentation, what what's next? Um, well, I'm, I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, right now, I'm doing a lot of things like this, um, uh, promoting my new book. Um, and I am beginning to uh, think a little bit about a future book project. Um, I have a friend who is uh, who is a book illustrator, and we have been having conversations about possibly collaborating on a book uh, for children um, uh, about bacteria and fermentation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really look forward to seeing that. And it was so nice to have you on the show today, Sandor. And I uh, have to say, really am enjoying the book as I like plug my way chapter by chapter. Of course, I was drawn to the ag chapters first, but so much great information. I would really encourage uh, all my listeners out there to, to check it out. And thanks for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Once again, you've listened to another episode of The Farm Report. Next week, we will kick off our three-part series on fiber. Not the not the bran and raisin variety, but talking about sheeps and textile production. So tune in the next three Thursdays at 1 o'clock uh, for everything from sheep to yarn. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. 